Well, if you would, please take your Bible today and turn to Romans chapter 3. We are in the last three verses of Romans 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, then please get one of the black pew Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that, that Bible, it should be on page 941. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then just take that one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word uh, available. And if, you, uh, if you're not a regular reader of their Word and you're taking it, go to the book of John, start there. Let's talk after church. I'll help direct you. Uh, but we want you to have God's Word. But let's read together Romans chapter 3, verses 29 through 31. I'm actually going to start at verse 27 just for some context and remind us where we were a few weeks ago when we left off here in Romans. It says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now to the the portion we'll be in today. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I want to tell you something that ought to be really obvious. God is the most important thing. All right. That ought to be obvious, but sometimes it's really, really easy to get caught up in other things. Now, of course, if you're not a believer, then you're probably caught up, I mean, you're obviously caught up in all kinds of other things. Um, in order to come to know God, you have to Come to know God. You have to recognize that God is our creator and our judge and our sustainer, that God is the one that everything is all about. God is the one who existed before there was such a thing as time or matter or space, and he's the one who spoke everything into existence, and he's done it for his glory. That's just part of what it is to come to faith, even as we put our faith in God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. But as Christians, it's, it's sometimes easy to start thinking as though, well, all of these doctrines over here, do, this doctrine of justification and faith and sanctification and this thing and that thing and this issue and this topic and that topic, um, well, there, there's just so much to think about and explore and all these ways that these teachings apply to our lives. Sometimes you can lose sight of the fact that all of this is because of God himself. Every bit of it flows from God and the very nature of God, and in particular, our relationship with God, the way that God saves people through his son Jesus and justifies sinners by faith, it is on the basis of God. It is rooted in the very nature of God and who he is. He's announced about himself to Moses and elsewhere in the scripture that he is the Lord, a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that this covenant love, it it, it flows out of his very nature. And as we have been in Romans, and in particular Romans 3, where, where Romans 3 is just one of the plainest places in Scripture, not the only plain place in Scripture, but one of the plainest places in Scripture, that God justifies sinners by faith alone, apart from works. Uh, as we see that, we're, we're going to see today that that is rooted in the very nature of God. It comes back to God, because we have one God 
He has one people and one way of salvation, and it is all by faith in Jesus Christ. So let's see, first of all, how the gospel displays God's oneness. The gospel displays God's oneness. Now, what do I mean? I've got to say what I mean when I say gospel. All right? Sometimes people, when they hear the word gospel, they think, well, that means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories about the life of Jesus. Well, it, it, it has to do with that. But the gospel is the good news to us of Jesus. It's not just the fact of who Jesus is and, and what he has done, but the fact that this is good news to us, that, that this God, our creator and our judge, has sent his son Jesus for sinners who were hopeless and lost to live righteously for us, to die perfectly for our sins, to rise from the dead, and to offer all of the benefits that he has earned in his life and death and resurrection to us free of charge. The, the, the law is what God requires of people, but the gospel is what God graciously gives to people, and he does it in Jesus Christ. But the gospel, that glorious gospel of salvation by faith alone, through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, it displays something ultimately about God himself. And it says here about the oneness of, of who God is. So let's, let's look in these verses. It says, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And I'm actually going to start with this reason that it gives at the beginning of verse 30. It says, since God is one. It says, this is the reason why verse 29 is true. So I'm going to start with that reason, then I'll go back to verse 29. He says, this is a, a central truth that you need to know about God. The God who created you, the God whose image you are created in, the God that you were made to know and to love and to glorify, whether you've ever given any thought to that at all, here's who this God is. God is one. Now, there's much more that can be said about God, and really the entire Bible is telling us about God, but this is one of the central statements about God in Scripture, repeating that from Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, as it's often called, the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. What does it mean when it says that God is one? Well, it means a couple of things. One of the things that it means is that God in himself is one. He is one God, and he is, as is sometimes called with the, in, in Christian theology, he is simple. By simple, we don't mean that there's no complexity about God. We mean that you, you can't divide up God into multiple parts. You, you don't have, you know, b- before God was, you don't have a stack of love and a stack of justice and a stack of this attribute and that attribute where you, you just kind of pile them all together and you end up with a big soup that's called God that was made out of these ingredients. No, God is not divided out into parts. God is one. He is who he is in himself. And as we go and we learn those things about God, we're not figuring out different parts of God or different things that came together like the parts of my Toyota Corolla that got put together in the factory to eventually become a car. God just is who he is. He is one. This is even expressed in the name that he has for himself, Yahweh, the great I am. He just is in himself. 
There is nothing more fundamental than God. He is a oneness. He is simple. And you, some of you are thinking, but he's also three. And yes, he is. He, he is also the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not as though these three were separate gods who said, let's mix up together and be a great God or something like that, or three parts of God. This is a great mystery, how it is that God is both one and three, but we have to take what the Bible emphasizes here and many other places of the oneness of God, that even as God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three subsistences in one substance, if you want to use the words of the Second London Confession, which I love, It's hard to wrap our minds around, but we have to remember this is one God. One God. Part of what it also means when it says God is one is that there is only one God. There are not other gods out there competing with this one God. Isaiah 45, 5, God says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Later in that same chapter, Isaiah 45, 21, he says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. That's confusing in some ways because the Bible does talk about other gods. Sometimes it even names these other gods. The Baals and Asherah and Chemosh and Dagon and all these, all these other gods that were worshipped. Zeus is out there. But... Ultimately, what he's saying here is that no matter what those are or are not, whether those things are demons who have jumped in to take advantage of the fact that people want to worship something other than God, or whether those are simply figments of the imagination, regardless of what they are, none of them, even if they're called gods with little g's, none of them are gods. There is only one God and no other being whether invented or real, in all of creation, can compare it to the Creator. God alone is God. Now, this does not mean that all religions are really serving the one God. Sometimes people would look at this and they'd say, well, it says there's only one God. Well, that means that no matter who's trying to, to have a religion, well, they're actually on a different path up the same mountain, and they're really trying to get to the same place. Well, that's the opposite of what this is asserting here. It's the opposite of what the Bible says. It's saying if you are serving anything other than this one God, you are not serving a God at all. If you are serving Allah, you are not serving a God if you are serving Buddha or any of the gods of, of Hinduism or any other religion, you are not serving God at all. You might be on a path up some mountain, but at the top of it, it's a volcano, and it drops down to destruction. There is one and there is only one God, as he makes very clear. It, it, as it says in Galatians 4.8, Paul said to the believers in Galatia, he doesn't say, well, back when you were pagans, you were really just trying to get at this God, but now I've told you the right way. No, he says this, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God. That is remarkable that God would let us know him and that he would let us come to him by his son Jesus Christ, this one God. One of the things that we see also here is not just that God is one, but because God is one, 
that believers are one people of God. So back to verse 29, he had just said, since God is one, was what we just said in verse 30, and, and that is giving a reason for what he says in verse 29. So look there with your eyeballs, point them down. It says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also, since God is one. This, this idea flows logically from the fact that God is one, that there is only one God that he is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, I want you to not lose sight. I want us not to lose sight. I want myself not to lose sight of the joy that this would have caused the Gentiles of Paul's day when they first heard this. Because just think of this. How is God known? Well, he's been known for many generations leading up to this point as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, the, the God of Elijah. The God of David. Uh, the God who had marked off a people for himself beginning with Abraham, who were marked off by that sign of circumcision as being part of the children of the covenant. The people who were part of the 12 tribes, not just from Abraham's seed, but specifically from Jacob's offspring, who had been there at Mount Sinai and had heard the Ten Commandments come, had been delivered from the Egyptians through the Red Sea and had wandered in the wilderness, had come into the Promised Land, had had the tabernacle and the system of worship and, and the, uh, the, the laws that set them apart from all other nations in all kinds of ways down to the kinds of garments they could wear and the kinds of foods that they could eat, that they were distinct. They were called this holy people, meaning separate and different from everyone else. And there were many who were on the outside in the Gentile world, who longed to be a part of the people of God, who longed to know this God. Sometimes they were called God-fearers, and they would hang around the synagogues, around, around the, 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 the known world at that time. And, and there would be this question, well, how am I going to come to God? I mean, some would go through the process of conversion to Judaism, involving circumcision, involving all kinds of rituals to, to come to that point. Um, sometimes, well, I, I won't get into all that that involved, but, um, but what, what an incredible thing, what a, what a daunting thing it would be to say, well, to come to God, I have to become Jewish. I have to become part of this people. I have to forsake the identity that I grew up with, the tribe and the family that I was from. And I, and I have to become a part of something different than what I was. Well, here in Christ, something is being made plain and being broken wide open in this great new covenant of Jesus that he has initiated by his blood that was the only way people were ever saved all along, was by faith in Jesus. But being made plain, God is not the God of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles also. I, I want you to hear the way that that was received when Paul preached that in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13. He had been preaching to the Jewish people who were there on, on this first missionary journey, 
And it says in 1346 in, in Acts, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes the Old Testament here. He's not saying this is a new thing. He's quoting the Old Testament. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, listen, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We can so easily take it for granted that the vast majority of us in this room are Gentiles. There are very few who are ethnically Jewish among us. And we can so often take it for granted, well, this is just how it's always been. This is just normal. But it is an amazing thing to be rejoiced over when God makes it plain and clear through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is not the God of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles also. And that ought, that, that is a cause for rejoicing. That, that is a thing that you can go to and you can be glad about. That God would take us as we are and call us his children by faith. Gentiles do not have to give up their Gentileness and become legally or culturally Jewish to be saved by the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We are partakers of the covenant, partakers of the same grace that God gave to everyone who has ever been saved from both the Jews and the Gentiles. There is one God, and he makes it plain that he brings people from the Jews and the Gentiles into his one people, He's not going to deal with this kind of people differently than he deals with this kind of people because they're different people. He's going to save both in the same way by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps today in our cultural context that we have in, in Christianity and in our church, what we have to emphasize even more than saying you don't have to become Jewish to come to faith in this God, we can also say, well, you don't have to give up Jewishness to come to embrace Jesus as Messiah and Savior. Now, of course, you, you can't remain in what's called the religion of Judaism today. Modern Judaism, ever since the death and resurrection of Jesus, what's now called Judaism has been established as a formal system of rejecting Christ as Savior. All right? So I'm not saying stay in that religion that rejects Christ as Savior. But the Bible does not call those who are ethnically Jewish to give up their ethnic Jewish identity. I, I also, I wouldn't recommend that you join a Messianic Jewish church. And by Messianic Jewish, I'm not talking about churches that are primarily people of uh, Jewish ethnicity. I'm talking about a movement that is called Messianic Judaism. Messianic Judaism draws so much of its inspiration and its practices from modern Judaism, which is, as I said, a religion that formally rejects Jesus as Savior, and, and, and we need to draw our practices from the Scriptures, the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible, uh, rather than drawing practices from that uh, Christ-rejecting religion, all right? 
But, but it is still a good thing if there is a church full of people, whether predominantly Gentile, predominantly Jewish, uh, or anything in between, who are seeking to know the Lord together and to be joined together. Uh, as I was getting ready for, for uh, this sermon and just studying the scripture, I was reviewing some parts of, uh, of a book by Baruch Meos. Now, some, some of you might remember him. He preached here a couple of years ago. He is a, a Reformed Baptist pastor from Israel, uh, pastored a Reformed Baptist church there for, I think, about 40 years or so, and he's retired now. Uh, but he wrote this book that's in our book nook called Come, Let Us Reason Together. Uh, it has the subtitle, The Unity of Jews and Gentiles in the Church. If you have questions about what that ought to look like or about the Messianic Jewish movement, I highly recommend that book. But, uh, but let me just uh, read you a, a quote from Baruch Meos that I think is relevant to this passage here. He says, Nationalities and cultures are not erased by the gospel. They are challenged and sanctified. Jews remain Jews, just as Americans remain Americans and the French remain French, with an added twist. If I, if I understand Paul rightly in what he wrote to the Romans, God's covenant faithfulness to Israel in the teeth of their stubborn sin is confirming testimony to the grace of uh, testimony to the gospel as being God's power to save all and any and his grace in doing so. God made a covenant with Israel such as he did not make with any other nation. The glory of his grace has to do with his bringing both Jews and Gentiles into one body on the grounds of that grace, bestowed because of the virtues of Christ's sacrifice and by the powerful, saving, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Guys, the beautiful truth of verse 29 here is that you don't have to become something other than who God has actually made you in order to come to faith in Jesus. Jews do not have to become Gentiles. Gentiles do not have to become Jews. As, as Baruch Mayos pointed out, Americans don't have to become French. The French don't have to become Americans. We come to God as we are, and he takes us, and he saves us, and sanctifies us, and puts us together as one people in Christ. Here's the way that it's put in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read you a couple of longer chunks of Scripture, all right? I just want, to, I want us to set our minds on this idea for a second, that God brings people from different places into one people by faith in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call, by call it means the time when the Holy Spirit converted you and gave you faith in Jesus, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's amazing remain in the condition in which he was called, by which he does not mean the condition of being deep in love with your sin. That's not the condition he's talking about. He's saying the condition of the ethnicity that you were a part of, of the, uh, the culture that you were a part of. You don't have to give those things up in order to be part of the one people of God through faith in Jesus. Another, another passage about this, Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, he's not saying that Jewishness is erased or Gentileness is erased or maleness is erased or femaleness is erased by coming to Christ. He is saying that all who come to Christ, regardless of those things, is put together as part of the one people of God. We have equal standing before God. We are children of Abraham. He says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are Abraham's offspring. I could read a couple more, but I'm just going to cut it off for there right now. He puts us together as one people. One application, one thing that we need to know about this is that the mission of the church that God has given us is not to conform people to a culture. It's to conform people to Christ. So we're not here to make people more Jewish. We're not here to make people more Gentile. We're not here to make people more or less American. We're not here, oh, this is a big thing right now, is, is, is you, you ought to be less white or more white or more this or more that. No, it, it's it, the culture that you're in, you, you, you can keep it. Now, you analyze it, say, are there sinful things about this culture? Of course, we want to be sanctified, but, but he calls us as we are and he puts us together. He says in 1 Peter 2 that once you were not a people, Meaning you are a mixed up group of all kinds of weird people, but now you are God's people in Jesus Christ. He's called us together. He's made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, as it says there. Now, God doesn't have two peoples. This is, this is a thing that we have to address because there is a system uh, that was invented in the early 1800s called dispensationalism that by the 20th century became one of the most popular ways for, for evangelical Christians to view the Bible um, that says, well, God has two peoples. God has the Jewish people who he was dealing with directly up until the time of Christ. And then when they primarily, when most of them rejected Jesus, well, God put a big parenthesis in history And so he's got that people on hold while he now deals with this Gentile people called the church. And at the end of that, historical parenthesis will be at the rapture where he'll take away the church and then he'll start going back and dealing with that first people again in a different way than he dealt with the church. And the the original forms of dispensationalism, it's it's hard to peg down because they don't use... Uh, confessions. You can't say, well, here is the confessional standard. Here is what they believe. Every dispensational preacher has kind of their own flavor of this, right? But the original versions of it would even say, well, the Jewish people are saved by what Jesus called the gospel of the kingdom. And that the Gentile people are saved by what's called uh, elsewhere in the scriptures, the the gospel of grace. Do you see the problem there? If you're going to have two peoples of God you got to have two Gospels. And you know what the Bible says about having two Gospels? It says in Galatians 1, if anyone comes and preaches to you another Gospel besides the one that we, the apostles, preached, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. Now, all of that, I'm, I'm bringing that back around to you because it's based right here in Romans 3, 29, 30, and 31 that there is one God that this one God has one gospel, and that because of the nature of who this God is, 
that he brings people to himself in one way and makes them one people. In Romans 11, he's going to go into more detail about how it is that he grafts the Gentiles into this one people, makes us all part of the same people, makes us all children of Abraham together. But the basic idea here is, hey, if we've got one God, we've got one gospel. And this is the same gospel for every person everywhere. It is the same offer of salvation. It is the same way to be saved. It's not a different gospel for this group or this group or this group. It is one gospel, and he calls us to be one people together in Christ. This also tells us this oneness of God that he speaks of. It says that there is one gospel, that faith in Christ is the only way to God. Look at what it says in verse 30. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, when he says circumcised and uncircumcised there, he's, he's talking about those who are Jewish and those who are not Jewish. And why would this be a big deal? Well, this is a big deal because there were those who were preaching a different gospel about this. It, uh, back in Acts, it says that in, in Acts 15.1, it says that there came some men down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if someone came to this church who was in a prestigious role, well-respected, well-known, from an influential church, and came to our pulpit and said, You're preaching lots of the right things, but you need to know this. Unless you convert to Judaism and begin keeping the Mosaic law, you will go to hell. That's what they were being taught. That's exactly what they were being taught. But here's the truth. They they convened together as the apostles and said, this is what God has shown us in Christ, and here is how, how, uh, how Paul sums it up right here. I should say God sums it up through Paul's pen. God is going to justify everybody that he justifies in one way. Everyone who receives forgiveness of sins and eternal life is going to receive it in one way. And that one way does not have to do with conversion to Judaism. It does not have to do with circumcision. It does not have to do with the Jewish food laws. It does not have to do with any kind of works. But the one way that he will justify is by faith. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, there have been some through the ages who have looked at this verse and have wanted to overthrow it. And one of the ways that they try to overthrow it is by saying, well, look, there are two different prepositions used. Those of you who remember your English classes, you know what a preposition is. It says here, uh, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So some who are very clever indeed would say, well, that's two different ways, by faith and through faith. So, okay, yeah, you've got a gospel of the kingdom and a gospel of grace. That's ridiculous. (laughs) It's just not what it says. If you want to know what's going on here, that's not a difference in how God justifies. It's a difference in language style. You know how sometimes when you write down a sentence, you realize that you wrote a word twice? 
and you go back and you change one of them to some other word. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. The way we know that is not just because we say, well, that's what we want him to be doing, but he uses these same words in other places too. So like Galatians 2.16 says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. He's saying the same thing with just two different words. And then in Galatians 3.8, it says, The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And you say, well, if by and through are so different, why does he justify the Gentiles by faith in Galatians 3.8 and the Gentiles through faith in, uh, in, in Romans 3.30? Now, that's a little bit tedious, what I just told you, okay? But I just want you to have confidence that this is saying Everybody that God saves, God saves in the same way. Regardless of background, regardless of anything, it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that God saves. It is by faith. That's the big point here. What is faith? Well, it's receiving. I'm going to tell you again. How many times have I told you what faith is? I don't know. And some of you today, you still couldn't define it if you were asked when you left here. So I'm going to tell you again, right? What is faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it is receiving and resting upon Christ alone for our salvation. It's not just knowing the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You do have to know it. It's not even just intellectually affirming that truth where you would say on some level, yes, I believe that it is true that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for my sins and that he rose from the dead. Satan affirms the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done, but he is not a believer. That faith has to do with personal trust, entrusting oneself into the hands of Jesus personally as Savior. Not just knowing the gospel, not just affirming the gospel, but entrusting yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. That's the way that God saves Jews. That's the way that God saves Gentiles. That's the way that God saves Americans. That's the way that God saves South Africans. And everybody everywhere is by this one gospel, by faith in the one Savior. Repentance goes along with that faith. Repentance of sin logically flows from that faith. It's a marker of it. Confessing our sins before God is a marker of it. Confessing our faith in Jesus before the world is a marker of that faith. But it all comes as a gift, a gracious gift by the Holy Spirit to turn to Jesus and entrust ourselves to him alone for our salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this gospel, it not only displays God's oneness in having one God with one way of salvation where he makes for himself one people, it also upholds God's law. It displays God's oneness, and it upholds God's law. Look at verse 31. It says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And he answers his own question, By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. Now, the question here is, well, if people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, does that mean that you're saying, Paul, that you don't have to obey God's rules anymore? 
That, that all of a sudden you're, you just, you know, you got this get out of hell free card and you can go live like you're going to hell, but get out of it somehow. And he just says here, obviously not. By no means. This is very similar to what he already said back in verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? And he just answers there, their condemnation is just. All right? I do want to say, if you're preaching the gospel in such a way that people don't have this question, then you're not preaching it in the same way that Paul preached it. If you preach the gospel in such a way that people are very, very, very clear about all of the laws that you must keep, rather than being very, very clear about all of the grace that God gives, then you're giving an emphasis that Paul didn't give. Paul preached the gospel, and the apostles, Jesus, preached the gospel in such a way that people came away saying, is he saying sin doesn't matter? He, they, here's the idea. Grace was preached so freely that it was easy to misunderstand and think that it was saying sin was okay. We ought to preach grace that freely. Not in such a way that we overthrow the law. We uphold the law. But we need to preach the gospel of God's grace so freely that the thing that people see, the thing that stands out in the front is not rule-keeping. The thing that stands out in the front is forgiveness and grace for sinners. Grace that is greater than all our sin. That we rest on Christ and have eternal life. Not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of Christ. And when we preach that way, when we present the gospel as so free and so gracious, this question will come up. Are you overthrowing God's law? Are you throwing all of God's rules out the window? And the answer to that is by no means. By no means. On the contrary, by the gospel, we uphold the law. Well, how does that happen? Well, the answer is in Christ. I want you to hear this. A system of coming to God by works does not uphold God's law. I'm going to say it again. If you think that your works contribute to your right standing before God, you are following a system that is against God's law. You are not upholding God's law. That's what this says. It's upholding God's law to come to him by the gracious gift of the gospel. Here's the reason for that. If you're sitting down and taking a test in your algebra class, and you have gotten two answers into the test, and you realize, I got answer number two wrong, and I can't go back and change it now. Are you going to get 100% on that test by getting all the rest of the answers right? Absolutely not. There is no way for sinners to be justified by a system of law. Because by the moment that we realize that we are sinners, that we need to be justified, if you're relying on the law, you are already doomed. You cannot get a perfect score on that test no matter how many questions you get right from here on out. 
We need a different system if we're going to uphold the law. If we're going to come to before God counted as righteous, counted as 100%, even though we've already messed up the test a lot more than just one question. It has to come from somewhere besides us. You know where it comes from? The person of Jesus. Here's how we uphold the law by the gospel. We trust in Jesus, who is the one and the only one who perfectly obeyed the law. And he obeyed the law for us in our place. And when we trust in Jesus for our salvation, his obedience to the law is counted as ours. His righteousness is counted to us by faith. That God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The other part of that, too, is that when he died on the cross... For all who will believe in him, he took our sin upon himself and he paid the penalty for it. He upheld God's law, not just in his obedience, his active obedience, we call it, and his doing what is right in his life. He also upheld God's law in his passive obedience and dying on the cross because justice, the right penalty for our sin, was satisfied and paid in his death. When we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are upholding the law because that is the only way that the God of the law can receive sinners as righteous in his sight is by the righteous death and righteous life of Jesus being counted to us so that our sins are paid, we're united to Christ, we are saved by grace alone. That upholds the law. The other part of this too is we we agree that God's law is good and as believers, if you're a believer in Jesus, you want to obey God. That's just part of what it means to be born again. It's not just that you have signed up for your get out of hell free card. It's that God gave you a new heart and wrote his law on your heart as it says in Jeremiah 31. So that we no longer love sin, but we love God and we want to honor and obey him. We want to obey the Ten Commandments, even though we daily break them in thought, word, or deed. We uphold the law as believers in Jesus Christ. We don't dump the rules. It's by no means, and God is going to get us more into this when we get to chapter 6. Most of Romans 6 is addressing this question. So I'll just kind of leave a lot of it for then. But here is what you need to do. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to come to this one God in the one way that he has established, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. You need to be counted as righteous before him in his holy law because Jesus has paid it all for you. You need to come to him not throwing out your identity that you were in before you came to Jesus. We have to I could preach another sermon on what the word identity ought to mean. We don't mean what the world means by that. But you don't have to give up your Jewishness, your Gentileness, your Americanness, all those things. We come to Jesus, and he puts us together as one people of God. Trust in him alone as the one who paid the penalty for your sins, was nailed to the cross, and died. Trust in him as the one who will bring you to this one God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are one, 
We thank you that you have made a way of salvation, that we didn't deserve any way of salvation, and you have broken the way open in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who lived for us and was slain for us and who lives again for us and is ruling uh, at your right hand right now. God, I pray for those whose faith is not in Christ. Maybe their faith is in some other God or some other system other than this one gospel. I pray that you would turn them to Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, to be justified by faith, just as it says here. And I pray that as those who are justified by faith, I pray that you would help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to uphold the law, to be the one people of God as you've commanded us to be, to love one another and to love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.